Uh, hello, everyone. Um, welcome to our listeners and to our viewers. We're now on many um, podcasts, kind of um, like Spotify, SoundCloud. You can look at and, and listen to us there. You can also watch it on YouTube. So, so welcome to both the listeners and the viewers. Very, very happy to say today, got another guest on the show, uh, Mr. Rick Holland. I'm really interested to talk to Rick. Um, he was actually introduced to me by some of the other people we've spoken to, other guests, um, and, and it's taken a bit of time to organize this, but I'm so happy to have you on. Um, the first question is always, it's going to be like, tell me a little bit about yourself or tell our listeners. I've done a little bit of stalking as I always do. I look you up on LinkedIn, but it's always better to kind of hear it straight from yourself. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be on. Um, it's great to have a, a conversation today. Yeah, I'm Rick Holland. I'm one of the uh, chief information security officers at ReliaQuest. Uh, we were, I used to be the CISO at Digital Shadows, but ReliaQuest bought us um, last year over the summer. Um, so I'm going through the integration process uh, there. Uh, prior to that, I was an analyst at Forrester Research. And actually, you mentioned previous guest, John Kindervog, uh, who's a good friend of mine. He actually recruited me uh, into Forrester you know, many, many years ago, well, probably... 11, 12 years ago, something along those lines. And I've known John, I've known John for 15, 20 years. Uh, and he's been a mentor of mine. So in fact, we wouldn't be talking today if it wasn't for uh, for John. And, and and before that, I had roles as a, a security uh, incident responder in higher education. I was in the US Army. Actually, we were talking a little bit about that before we started recording, but I was stationed in the UK in East Anglia for two years. Um, and then of course, Digital Shadows was a UK uh, company. Um, and so I've spent a lot of my life um, in, in the UK, in London and in East Anglia. So thrilled to be here. I always ask a question about food at the end. So I'm going to ask you a question about English food. So so keep it ticking over in your mind and we'll get to that because I love asking people about English food. Um, I guess my first question is, about the role of the CISO, I mean, we—it's it, a relatively new role, I would say. I mean, it—I guess it's been around. Paul Simmons talks about possibly being being one of the first CISOs, but I think the role's evolved. But I also think there's an awful lot of confusion in in what the role is because it, like I said, it's relatively new. For me, IT evolved from being like that desktop machine under under the finance person's desk into having computer rooms and then data centers and then the cloud and kind of security came along after that and evolved not that long ago so when we look back in the history i don't think it's particularly old um, but i'd like to hear from from you about what do you think the role of the CISO should be and kind of a follow-on question from that if anyone out there who's listening wants to be a CISO what advice would you give to them Sure. You know, the role is is always different depending on the size of an organization, depending on uh, what vertical that you're in, what part of the world you're in. But regardless of that, I think the the job of the CISO should be to, to highlight risk to the organization. Uh, it's not our job to say we're going to solve this problem or that problem. It's, I mean, we need to present what the risks of the organization are and prioritize them and then the the business in quotes makes a decision on what we're going to do so often the business may make a decision to roll the dice and accept risk and if that's the case then we need to accept that that's a business decision do the best that we can to help minimize the risk that's there and, and kind of move on but to me i think the CISO's role 
um, should be more risk focused. But as you as you kind of alluded to, we definitely started out on the tech tech side of the house. Um, and I think CISOs that only are able to speak in tech, uh, vulnerability, CVEs, indicators, you know, EDR and all these terms will probably not uh, partner with the C-suite and leadership as well as they could because that type of function is more interested in business outcomes and how does the CISO help reduce risk to the business outcomes for the company? Yeah, so for, I think for, for me... I'm not sure if if that role should come out of IT or whether it should come in from some kind of other direction. We we talk quite a lot on the podcast with veterans who seem to make very good security-minded folks. Um, is there a reason you think behind that? And it's not just in in America. I think a lot of a lot of security people that end up being C-servers come out of the military in some form. Do you think that's to do with the way you look at risk? It's a really good question um, because you're coming out of the military, you're thinking about threats. And I have to talk about this in my own journey. I dealt with threats in the physical world when I was in, in the army and now I'm dealing with threats in, or as an incident responder, I was dealing with threats and now as a CISO um, and running an intelligence function, I deal with the cyber threats there. So I do think it gives you some good perspective to think about threats, their capabilities, their intentions, how do you mitigate them? How do you detect them? Of course, you don't need to come out of the military to be an effective CISO. Um, I think CISOs from all different backgrounds that are there. But for me, it's been, you know, it's been very easy. I, I've been thinking about threats since I was 18, year old, 18 years old in the military. And, you know, it just continues to be threat focused throughout my career. Yeah, we talked um, with Ron Sharon on the podcast. Um, and we talked about how a lot of kind of startups come out of Israel. And, and why did he think that was the case? And I don't think you'll mind me repeating this, but he, he basically said that if you're in that kind of area of the world, there are threats all around you. You are taught as a child, if you get on the bus in the middle, in, the middle of summer and there's someone on there with a trench coat on, that's probably going to be a threat. And you grow up with that mentality, mentality of there always being concerns around you. And he said that he felt that because you deal with that risk on a daily basis, your mindset is in that way. And I think, I mean, and I go back to my, my kind of career. I, I started off as an infrastructure person and we never had usernames and passwords. They came along after once you started giving out kind of email addresses, you had to give people a password so they could log in and keep them private. And it kind of grew. I didn't realize for quite quite a lot of years that, the way we do things today, or the way we historically do things, is just give everyone access to everything. I mean, even when passwords first came along, they were just blank. People just rocked up to the computer and pressed enter, and they logged in. And that that mentality, I think, is still there. People are not necessarily used to looking around and seeing the potentials. And I think... If you're in an area of conflict or if you're in a location and, and the environment starts getting heated at a football match or wherever you may be, you can sense it. Most people would be able to sense that kind of maybe there's going to be a fight or maybe something's going to go on. But I think the problem with IT and cyber is it's invisible to most people. And therefore, it's really, really 
hard to kind of put your finger on it. And I don't know how we're going to change that. Um, but the question about the CISO, what do you think would be your advice to somebody that starting out in their career and that's where they want to go? What do they need to start doing? Or, or is it a mindset? Is there a technical background you need to have? What do you think makes a good CISO? First, I'd probably say, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> uh, the CISO role can be um, uh, can can be quite stressful. But I would say any anybody in cybersecurity, right? The threat gets a vote. Um, we had the three CX um, intrusion a couple weeks ago, and that blew up lots of you know everyone. We all make the painful joke Friday afternoon. Uh, you know what kind of vulnerability is going to come out? It's going to get released. It's going to derail our whole, whole weekend. So I, I actually think that challenge applies to the entire security team not just the CISO um that it's there if 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 you're interested in in that route i think one is is finding a mentor so who in your organization is responsible for security it may be a head of it may not be a CISO title but obviously there's going to be someone that's responsible well hopefully there's going to be somebody that's responsible for cybersecurity but in the event that there's not that could be an opportunity for you if your organization does not have someone responsible for it, maybe that's something that you could stay, step up and do. And obviously the organization would be less mature. So maybe they're willing to take a, a, a bet on an employee that knows the organization, knows the culture, and it's going to kind of stand up the program there. So I think the the, the mentoring component is is pretty, pretty key there. Um, the, other, the other bit, I think for all CISOs just in general, is going out and talking to the lines of business to understand what they care about, how do they generate revenue? And then you can start thinking about, okay, yeah, we're e-commerce and we're going to roll out this new application. And so, we, and we really needed to protect the consumer's data. You know, how are we going to make sure that they're not going to get socially engineered, et cetera, et cetera. So I think understanding, if you want to go the CISO path, I think understanding the business, no matter what type of vertical sector, or even if you're in, in, in the, in the government or public sector, understanding what your mission is and how you accomplish it. And then think about how can you find risks associated with that? Um, and then how can you make suggestions on how you can mitigate risk uh, to your, to your, to your question, um, Jay, about uh, the technical side. I do think having a technical foundation is very valuable for a CISO um, because you can kind of understand down and the challenges there, but you've got to be able to translate it up. So if all you do is talk tech to my point about CVEs and indicators and, and exploits, et cetera, you're never going to be able to translate it to the business side. So it can be a challenge to find people that can, you know, translate these very technical things into something that the business cares about that's going to impact revenue or customer retention or sales and things along those lines. But another question and leading on from that. Where do you think the CISO should report? Should they sit on the Ooh. board? <laughs> and and maybe it's not black and white. Maybe it's gray. Um, and I've got my thoughts, but let, let's see what your thoughts are. And maybe we can have a bit of a chat about it. My, my opening perspective is I do think that the CISO should report outside of the IT organization, uh, just because there can be conflicts of interest and priorities and, and what's trying to be accomplished there. Uh, that being said, I have been in organizations where the security function does roll up into the IT function and it can work, you know, so your mileage, your mileage may vary there, but as a starter for 10, if you will, you know, being outside of the IT organization, having a little bit more independence, not having the, the conflicting uh, prioritization at some points, you know, because availability 
may bump up against something that's secure. Um, but these things can be worked out. I think you can you can report to a CIO and be successful. But generally speaking, in the more mature organizations that are out there, the CISO is going to report uh, sometimes into the CEO. There's challenges with that too. Sometimes the CEOs are too busy and they they really can't they can't focus on yeah. that. So that can be a challenge. Um, you've seen reporting into the risk organization, which I actually don't think is a bad is a bad angle. You've seen organizations report in, in maybe into a chief legal officer. Uh, but regardless of where you report, you know, you've got to have support from above. Um, otherwise, you're, you're going to have some challenges there. I think you 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 mentioned two things that are on my mind. One is maturity. I truly believe that security has evolved out of IT, which is why I think in a lot of cases, security is still under IT because it it was it was information security and then security and then cyber. So I think as a company matures, it, it becomes a little bit separated. And I think it is difficult depending on the organization. If the CIO owns the purse strings, it really depends on how they're motivated and what their what kind of their goals and what they're being told to achieve by the business is. Because if they're being told to keep the lights on, then therefore they have to put all the money there and security is on the kind of on the back burner and not so important, then you're going to be in a problem. And that's why sometimes I think it's separate. But the other thing you said is the support. And I think that goes for all areas of the business. But I think if you don't have the support from the CEO or the board, it's going to be really, really hard to get things done. And and when you look at the tenure of a, a CISO, I think it's just over two years. I've heard generally that that time frame as well. I mean, and that to me just seems crazy because it takes at least a year, if not exactly. 18 months. What, what, what can you do in two years? How much change? You can yeah. get some quick wins, but if you want to make a a paradigm shift or a significant shift in maturity, it's a, typically a more than a two-year journey. Yeah, I mean, if you join in the middle of a year, there's a good chance you haven't been through the budget cycle, so you don't have any money, mm -hmm. or you at least don't have the right amount of money. It will take you six months to a year to understand the business and understand where the risks are, because a lot of the time, nobody really wants to help the security team because they're, they are actually seen in a lot of cases still as a bit of a blocker rather than an enabler. So it takes a lot of time to get the information you need. By the time you then put it in the budget and go through the budget cycle and get approval, you've gone. It, it, to me, it just, and, and I don't know why, and I don't know if you know why, but I don't know why the role of the CISO is so short. Is it because there's a lot of pressure? Is it because they, and, and for me, I see a lot of CISOs join a business and a year later or 18 months later, They've not been able to do anything that they wanted to do. They've not been able to get the money, and therefore they get kind of hit in the head on the brick wall, so they leave. Do, do, what, what do you I, think? I think that's – I think a lot of times there's there's the bill of goods sold isn't really what you uh, expect it to be once you get into the organization. You hit the inertia. Um, you don't get the budget that you wanted. It gets deprioritized and things along those lines. Uh, but again, I do feel going back to the business kind of conversation component to it. Certainly you will. There are some where you just hit a wall. But I also think some CISOs move into roles where they are not seen. I have a joke like CISO, many CISOs are little Cs. They're not a big C. 
or little CISO. Um, and she or he really needs to make sure they have a capital C in their title. And if, if you go in and again, you're talking vulnerabilities and indicators and very threat focused and not business outcome focused, I, I do think that contributes to people leaving. Certainly there are ones where it wasn't important to the to the board, it wasn't important to the C-suite, it wasn't reported to the CIO, or, or that that's certainly in the mix there. Um, so going back to that original question around, you know, if you want to become a CISO, or if you're interviewing for roles, like really understanding up front, you know, where what's the reporting structure, you know, does the board have an independent advisor on cybersecurity? What is the what is the priority? Has this organization had a breach? Often organizations that have had a breach will be more security focused. Now, I think there's a half-life to that. So if you're in an organization, you have a breach, you're going to be able to get, certainly in the next year's budget, a lot of things. In fact, I always tell people, and I, I did this at Forrester quite a bit, you know, have your wish list. Like you've got your three-year plan, you have a breach, you can probably accelerate it quite significantly, yeah. but you better deliver on it because, hey, I just increased the budget by 20%. Next budget cycle comes you better have shown some wins and what you've implemented and been able to accomplish. Otherwise, you know, that half-life is going to get really, really quick and everything that you were able to potentially get mind share is going to start to fade away. Um, so you got to act quickly in those circumstances. Yeah. I, I certainly think there are not, a, not a lot of companies, but there are companies out there that have a CISO just because they need the title CISO in the organization. And they're a bit of a puppet maybe for the CEO or for the CIO. And they've not really got any kind of ammo in the, in the war. And as you said, you, you need to understand if you're going to take on this particular role in a company, are you going to get the backing you need? Are, are people actually going to stand behind you? Are you going to be able to make a change? Because whether we like it or not, security can be disruptive more than likely is going to be disruptive because if you walk into a company that isn't secure they're probably doing a lot of things that they're going to need to change to become secure and i remember first implementing passwords for people they were very angry and upset why can't i just press enter i pressed enter like for the last 10 years and then when you start talking about eight character passwords 10 character passwords you can't keep repeating your mum's name or your dog's name and then suddenly you've got to use mfa these things disrupt people. And if you walk into a company that's quite legacy and you try and make mm -hmm. all these changes, you're going to get a lot of pushback because it's that balance of efficiency of the business versus kind of being secure. And I wonder if there are – I'm not sure a lot of the kind of C-suite out there understand that one breach – can be significantly expensive, not even from a kind of downtime point of view, but from a, the way the company looks externally. I mean, th funnily enough, there are quite a lot of companies out there that repeatedly get attacked and repeatedly have downtime, and people don't seem to mind, but maybe they're in a niche environment. Um, but I, I want to pivot a little bit and, and talk zero trust. Um I spoke at length with Chase Cunningham and, and John and a few other people about this, and I know what their opinions are. And, and, and for me, I never knew Zero Trust existed, really, until about 18 months ago. I never knew what it was called, at least. And the reason I ended up doing the job I do today is because I didn't like the way we were doing things. I knew that insider threat was, was an issue. 
And I didn't like the fact that everyone on your landing one was trusted because attack attacks change. We, even back when we had firewalls, if you had a really, really strong firewall, I wouldn't say it was impenetrable, but you made it difficult enough for people not to bother. They just went to the, the people down the road. But then it got to the point where everyone's defenses were pretty good. So you just had people walking in and pretending to fill up the vending machine or be a cleaner and plugging in things on the network. And therefore, once they compromised one site in your global network of a thousand kind of sites, they could get everywhere. Um, but what are your thoughts on zero trust? Is it buzzword? Is it product? Is it strategy? And do you think it's got legs? And I know that's well, a very deep question. Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole segment on this, but I don't think it's a product just for starters. And then, you know, also I was there, you know, John recruited me shortly after he came up with it. Um, and so, you know, I got to ride shotgun with John and obviously have many conversations over the years about zero trust. I, I think it's a strategy uh, for sure. It's not a product and RSA conferences is, is, is coming up soon. And, you know, the, the vendor marketing teams hijack terms, repurpose terms and things like that. So we are a little bit of victim victims of, how a zero trust has been appropriated for marketing purposes there, but as a strategy, and it is a strategy that I have used in, in, in my career as a practitioner, I, I like the concept. Now, one thing I would say is I would use the term zero trust internally with the security team and with the IT team. I would not use the term zero trust with my colleagues. And I don't, I don't like to call them users. I actually think users is a negative term. They're, they're our colleagues. You know, they're, they're the people that work with us. Yeah. They're trying to, to help the company be successful because they're, if you don't have context on it, zero trust can have negative connotations. Um, so the, the, the way that we talked about it is like, really, we want to enable our colleagues to work from anywhere on any device and have transparent security controls that help them make the right decisions. Behind the scenes, zero trust all day long. Yeah. And, you know, there's certain technologies that kind of plug into your zero trust strategy and things along those lines. So I really do like the concept of it. You know, I assume everything's malicious. You know, the, you know, my phone is the new perimeter, you know, that, 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 that whole kind of thing. So it has definitely been used and abused. Now, I guess the good news for us is AI is going to, now take over i think zero trust and well maybe we're gonna have zero trust ai and then we'll get the we'll get the worst of both worlds there <laughs> well why do you think that zero trust has kind of come around again i mean obviously john coined the term way back it it, it i mean he he told us when we interviewed and it was a bit like fight club for a period of time like people were doing it but they were told they couldn't talk about it and then it, I, I guess it went quiet for a while why, why do you think it's now come around again and, and what's led to kind of the US government kind of mandating it? Well, I mean, part of it's, I think things are broken now and have been broken and people are looking for a better way. And the, the principles of zero trust uh, around identity and segmentation, you know, the attack surface has grown, the cloud has grown. You know, when you just had a moat, you know, moat castle kind of environment, seemingly a little bit more secure, right? But now, now you have companies that are growing through M&A, they're bringing on tons of different organizations, you have with the pandemic, people everywhere, you know, remote working is still still a big thing. So really being able to validate, 
you know, what an IP, what a user identity is doing is more important now than ever because everything is distri- distributed. It's only going to get more distributed. So I think a lot of that, the it being broken, the pandemic, the just expanding attack surface, SaaS, infrastructure as a service, multi-cloud, all of these things, zero trust can help with. Again, as a strategy and a and and a lo- I call it a long-term strategy as well. So, given it's a strategy, and I agree with you, by the way. I mean, I think there are products out there that can help you with zero trust. Um, RSA tends to be like everyone's badge in magical fairy dust is zero trust, um, but I think there are there are products that can help you because because technology is here really to help us. Unfortunately human behavior is we use it for good and bad but 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 it, it is there to help us so i believe there are products that can help us but it is a strategy and this is going to be a really difficult question for you and i apologize who should be responsible for that strategy is it your cio is it your cso is it higher than mm. that who's because who, for me it's a cultural change and i don't necessarily just mean a business cultural change i mean Everybody should understand cyber threats and cyber risks, ranging from children at school to our parents' parents that are still alive. It should be everywhere. How do we make the world understand how important cybersecurity is and and what zero trust can do for people? Well, I do think the headlines help us out here because, and I'm sure I would assume it's similar to you. You can talk to people that are not in our field, but they see the headlines. And maybe it was the solar winds and they're like, maybe they don't even know what solar winds is, but they saw it in the headlines that are out there. And certainly with the ransomware attacks, you think about the NHS going offline, or if you go into the U S and what, two summers ago, we had a bunch of ransomware attacks. We had um, meat, meat, meat packing company, JBL, uh, JBL, forgot the name of the company, but uh, you know, these are on the front of the BBC and CNN and Fox news. So the, I think, Generally, people understand cyber threats at a high level. The you know the normal consumer does more. I just think people can't be bothered to have intrusive security controls in place, or to have, you know, let's say, and VPNs maybe a practical example of a technology that kind of would fall into your, you know, how do you get people that are remote access to your applications um, or into your your data centers and things like that? So it was actually one of the projects that we had was, you know, you know, killing the on-prem VPN. Although people joke around kill the VPN, you're not really killing the VPN. You're just moving the termination to somebody's cloud um, someplace else. But, um, but but the reason I mentioned the VPN example is, you know, you, you move to a world where people are getting backhauled across the Atlantic ocean or across the country and they have a really poor user experience when doing that. If you move to some of these cloud-based solutions, and of course, Zscaler, Netscope, Palo Alto, vendors have these types of solutions. Well, now you can connect to a node that's local to you um, and you have a much better experience. You know, They don't need to know behind the scenes that this is a component of your zero trust kind of work from anywhere strategy. They just know that they'd be able to be more productive now on a personal device, on a company device, whatever the case may be. So I think the awareness about the threat landscape is there. Um, but I don't think they need to get into the weeds of, you know, it's this control that's protecting you. They just want to get their job done yep. and they want to have confidence that they can do their job and not be obstructed behind the scenes is where, you know, we're doing the, the hard work of zero trust and implementing it. See, I think you've raised the key point there that it's about efficiency. 
and and people want to continue to do what they're doing in life whether it's in work or not they want to be able to continue doing it as efficiently as they do today as fast as they do today so if security comes along and blocks that or slows it down people get upset but there's a lot of people use apple pay on their phones and other equivalents and and all of those things and and have face recognition or fingerprint recognition so as long as you have the ability to remain as efficient or more efficient or you give the users something better than they had before then i think they'll they'll cope with the security i i mean i remember when i first learned to drive i had a ford car um and my key for my ford car could open pretty much every other ford car i think there were like four keys that could open every ford car in the world <laughs> um and nobody cared because cars didn't really get stolen and then we went through a real big spat of joyriding and cars getting stolen so they made more more and more keys and they made it harder but then people stole things in a different way they broke the window and stole your stuff or hotwired your car and now we've kind of gone full circle well you now have keyless entry but now you can get these devices that mean that if the key's in the house you can still use it to open the car so I think the problem we've got, and I don't know how we're going to fix this within humanity, is technology evolves really, really rapidly to help people, but we don't always think about how the yeah. how the bad guys or girls are going to use that technology. It's like AI. Not that I want to get into AI. We'll have to do another call on AI, but it's great. <laughs> I like ChatGPT. I've used it to help me write some stuff, but what damage are we going to be able to do? Um but I want to I want to kind of circle back a little bit and talk ransomware. Um, we're certainly seeing reports coming out, and, and we see in the social media that ransomware is beginning to kind of drop off, and and it's not so prevalent. And we we had a conversation with Chase about this recently, and he said that, and I think he raised a good point. It's kind of dropping off in the areas where people are looking. So because the FBI and the US government are kind of looking a lot, the 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 people that were doing that are just going somewhere else where it's where it's not kind of being highlighted or looked at. Do you believe ransomware is going away? Or or do you think it's still just as prevalent, just kind of somewhere else? It's a really good question. Um and uh we are actually so digital shadows had historically done a court we've done a quarterly ransomware roundup since 2020 probably um and we've continued that with with ReliaQuest, and we're about to actually i think we're going to launch it next week we're going to have our q1 ransomware roundup um and there's two things that we look at with ransomware one is we're monitoring the data leak sites or the blog sites um where groups like lockbit are advertising their victims and we had seen the largest increase of listings in Q1 since 2020. Um, and so, and that's only a drop in the bucket because those are the only ones that go public because the other angle I have, and this could be kind of to, to Chase Cunningham's point, we also work with customers that we support at ReliaQuest and we know that they're being targeted by LockBit and we'll go onto the LockBit site and that victim is never mentioned there. So what's on those leak sites is only a drop in the bucket because there's so many companies, <clears throat> there's so many companies out there um, <clears throat> that it never becomes public. Maybe they pay the ransom, that sort of thing. So 
I, for me as a CISO and, and, and for the security teams listening, I would still have commodity ransomware as a number one thing in my threat model for most organizations out there. Um, now, of course, depending on your sector, you might need to be worried about nation state actors, of course, maybe hacktivists and things like that. But for most of us, we need to have security programs that can prevent commodity ransomware from targeting us. And do you think, and maybe this is a, a, a two-bit question, do you think companies can ever be fully protected against ransomware? Or do you think they also need to be prepared for when it happens? It It's both. There are certainly some things that you can do that will reduce the likelihood of you getting targeted by ransomware actors. The majority of ransomware actors out there, they do not use zero days. Although in, in, in Q1, we did see CLOP exploiting um, some zero day vulnerabilities. But most of the ransomware actors, and it's actually the initial access brokers, the people that come in first, they're going after things like uh, Juniper SSL VPNs that have a known vulnerability with a patch out that hasn't been patched. So first thing is making sure that you apply patches to all your external facing services, OWA, VPNs, RDP, um, that sort of thing. The next one is in, is enabling multi-factor authentication. Um, also network rules, right? So you restrict who can even access it. If you do do those things, you will take care of a huge initial access um, vector for ransomware. The other is email. So spear phishing and phishing in general is used for initial access. So making sure that you maximize your email security controls that are out there. You do the, I know security awareness has diminishing returns to it, but you there you can get some benefit from it. But if if you're able to handle your, ex, your external facing services, harden those and have a good strategy for phishing, you're going to minimize a lot of the um, initial access brokers going after it. Now, I still think you need to come back to, you know, detection and response and having your IR plan, certainly. Um, but I, you can eliminate, I, I don't know, let's use the 80-20 rule just because it's an easy one, like 80% by just focusing on email and those uh, external services. I, I think you raise a really good point there. I mean, that's just going back to basics. I mean, and, and to be honest, I've spoken to a lot of people recently. I get to a lot of events. Uh, I do the podcast and I speak to a lot of people that haven't even done the basics. And, and for me, even simple stuff like when a user leaves the company, disable their account. Maybe don't remove it immediately because you might not know what it's being used for. Certainly if they're in an IT or security team, you can't just delete it, but at least disable it. Like, make sure your HR team are telling you when people are leaving. The amount of times that we found out people were leaving at their leaving yeah. drinks. You got to have a good offboarding process, yeah. right? So you, you, you've and and you've got to have a good change process as well. If somebody used to work in finance mm -hmm. and they've moved over into manufacturing, or they've gone from being sales in one area to sales in another area, remove that ability to to access stuff they shouldn't. I mean. I love the concept of zero trust. But if you're only giving people access to stuff that they should have access to, you need to make sure what they should have access to. There's there's no point in in saying, well, this salesperson can access all this finance data and all this data and all that data. Well, okay, what do they actually need for their job? Because I don't like the concept of the name zero trust either, because I think it has some negative connotations. But I... I I think the idea of restricting what people can access to a minimum is great. Um, and I, I totally agree. And we talk about it all the time that 
get the basics, get those kind of the, the groundworks, those foundations. You can't build any strategy on poor foundations. And there is no point in going and buying a whole house ton of, of cards. Products. House of cards. Yeah. I, I, and the amount of people that I know that flick open the, the magic quadrant for different areas, they buy the top product or they buy best in breed, but they never fully implement it. They don't really know where the end game is or they start implementing it and they run out of money or there's a pushback from the business because it gets difficult and therefore they don't implement it, but they tick the box and say project done. Well, is it? it I mean, we quite often used to get audited and we used to have a ticker box. Did we have MFA? Yes or no? Well, you don't have MFA if only 20% of your organization are actually using it, right? And I'm not saying you'll ever get to 100% of everything, but 20 or 30% of people using MFA isn't enough. If if seventy percent of your remote users don't use it, then you're almost you're not. Or if really... you only have it on one application that's remote, yeah. and you don't have it on the others. So that I I personally think, set your foundations, get that right, make sure that all those tools that you have in place already that you've already paid for that you're already like depreciating or you've already depreciated fully, get the best out of them. Go back, make relationships with those vendors and, and say, look, can you come in and check we're using it correctly? And I know Microsoft have this thing where you can like run on Office 365 to say how secure you are. Um, but it changes. If you're, if you're using things in the cloud, for instance, that constantly changes. Check those permissions. Check that they haven't innovated something else that you're not aware of. Start with those foundations because if you don't do that, you're going to be in trouble. I mean, like the house of cards, you're just going to build, it's going to collapse. The CISO would have been gone because he leaves every two years. Someone mm -hmm. will get the blame, right? Um, okay, we've only got a few minutes left, 10 or so minutes. So I want to I want to ask you about Security Ad Advice Alliance. I see it's a non-profit organization. Tell me a little bit about yeah. it. Yeah, the Security Advisor Alliance, we formed it probably 10 plus years ago. But it's a nonprofit really focused on trying to bring up the next generation of cybersecurity practitioners. We always hear about the skill shortage or hiring shortage, although ironically, we see a lot of layoffs in the tech sector for cybersecurity folks. Um, in fact, we have a we have an event uh, coming up here in Dallas, but basically we'll go out to schools and we'll spend a day with them in the school and we try to highlight the cybersecurity field as an option. A lot of the, the kids in schools and in middle school, high school and college are very interested in going to the gaming industry. So we're trying to educate people to like, there are a lot of options in cybersecurity and not all of them are technical. There could be marketing as an example. There's, there's a lot of things in the cybersecurity space. We actually do capture the flag events cool. um, with the students as well, age appropriate and skill set appropriate, yeah. but it's, it's pretty cool to see the passion you know, you talk to like a 15 year old that's like, I didn't even think of cybersecurity as a potential career. I just did this capture the flag um, activity. It's cool. And now I'm interested. And then you engage with those students um, uh, and, you know, a little bit longer uh, throughout their career. But really the whole, the whole thing is trying to make people aware. Oftentimes we'll work with underprivileged schools that maybe don't have the same resources as some of the, you know, upper middle class uh, schools might have as well. But really it's, it's really trying to get the next generation of cybersecurity practitioners into the workforce. I think that probably works twofold as well, because you'll get more people come into the workforce. 
But even the ones that don't, you've at least educated them on cybersecurity, right? And I think that's something that mm -hmm. we probably oh, don't yeah, do enough to your of point. anyway. Every, everybody needs to be uh, aware of it, right? Yeah. I think that's really good. I mean, when I spoke to Chase, when I spoke to John, we talked about the, the next generation needing to understand because it's not going away. Cyber threats mm -hmm. are going to... Every time we make a shift and we get better at protecting against a certain thing, something else comes along. And that's always going to be the case forever. We're never going to be fully protected because as soon as you kind of, you've got all your eyes over there, you fix that problem. You've not been looking over there because you've been trying to fix that. And suddenly you look over there and you're like, oh shit, there's a hole there. Um, and that's always going to be the case. So I think it's, it's, it's great to kind of get the younger generation at least understanding what it means. Um, it's actually quite enjoyable. Uh, just one final note on that. When you go out, because sometimes going to the original line of conversation around the CISO job is hard. It's nice to go out to a school and you almost get energy back yeah. from the energy and excitement that the children have. So it's it's invigorating to try to work with the youth and try to, to, to bring them up. I like it. Well, before we wrap, I'd like to say I'd love to get you back on. I mean, we've literally scratch the top of what i wanted to talk about like just the top of the iceberg so i would i would love you to come back on there's so much more stuff i want to talk about um but before we wrap i want to ask you kind of two fun questions one is and they're both going to be about england because it's very rare i get anyone on the show that's like either english or have been to england so the first one is what was the best meal you had in the uk so this will have to be a combo answer because uh in my time at Digital Shadows, I was going to the UK five to six times a year for five years. So that on top of being stationed there for two years. So I went last more actually uh, a year ago last week. I did a about a twelve day trip, my first time since the pandemic. Yep. And I had a long list of things that I had to have uh, while I was there, and all food related. So it's tough to answer one. But number one is I, I had to go to Dishoom. Oh yeah, um, yeah. To have Indian food. And I like to go to Dishoom and have both breakfast and dinner. So every trip to, and probably for InfoSec, I'll do this. I have breakfast at Dishoom. Um, and they opened one in Canary Wharf, which yep. is where our office is. I used to go to Shortage um, typically. So I love Indian food from Dishoom. Uh, I, I had to have sticky toffee pudding. Oh yeah, yeah. That was an absolute, I had to have sticky toffee pudding. I had to have a Sunday roast um, while I was there as well. I had, a, had to have a Yorkshire pudding yep. as well. Um, so those were kind of the the must-haves, in addition to just being in London, which is such a great city for food in general. Um, I do also like um, pub foods. Also, you know, pub food's just great as well. And you got to have a fish and chips. You got to have a traditional breakfast as well. So it's tough to say one, um, especially when I had it queued up and hadn't been to the UK in two years. Like, <laughs> yeah. I got to get all these things. I probably gained 10 pounds on that trip just alone to, to be honest when i come over to the us i always have a list uh, and and i always want a burger because your burgers in the us are fantastic depending on where i'm going if i'm going to dallas i'll go to big 10 i think it is the barbecue place and a few other places um okay so question number two where was the best place you've been to in the uk i don't know if you got around a lot but what was kind of your the oh. best place you visited that's a tough one too because i live there two years and then i never came back to the states the entire two years that i was there um i i'll go i'll start scotland i'll go i'll go by country if you will edinburgh i i just loved edinburgh yeah um i've been to edinburgh three times twice at new year's and then once in august yeah um uh for the festival so that was awesome 
Um, I've got a dog barking in the background, apparently. Right. So apologies if that's getting picked up. Uh, in Wales, I like Snowdonia. Yeah, uh, Betsy Coed, uh, and that part of Wales is it was quite nice. I enjoyed that. Um, and then in general, I just love London. Um, I'm a big history buff and a World War II history buff. So some of the Churchill War Rooms, as an example, yeah. RAF Duxford, the Imperial War Museums. But yeah, I I I, I do love the UK all, all across. Well, so next time you come over, I'll take you to Dishoom. Sounds like a plan. Because I love Dishoom. I mean, I, I've been, I only went for the first time about six months ago. And it's one of those places where people have always talked to me, anybody that's ever come into the London, ever visited, of like, we need to go to Dishoom, we need to get to go to Dishoom. And I'd never got round to going. And then I went, and I can't remember where the original one is, but there's a whole bunch of them in London now. Like you said, Canareworth, Shoreditch, King's Cross. But yeah, if you happen if you happen to be over for InfoSec, I'll be at that event. And we should go out and, and yeah, get sounds like a plan. Uh, um, I always look for reasons to go to Dishoom. Oh, it's, it's fantastic! So I, I really want to thank you for coming on. Um, it's been great. Like I said, I've, we, we've only touched the, the tip of what I wanted to talk about. So I'd love you to come back on. I'd love to get you and John and Chase and a few others to kind of come on and do a bit of a panel if you're <laughs> up for that. That would be fun, but you would have three Forrester analysts there. I don't know. We'd all just be talking the whole time. That's fine. I could talk for, for England, so I'm fine with that. But, um, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. All right. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.